Welcome to another Invested Investor podcast. I'm here sat opposite Zev Fisher. Zev has a varied background. He's now running a company called Bakama here in Cambridge. So Zev, let's hear a little bit of your background. I'm an IP lawyer. I came to the legal profession in a slightly different route than most people, I suppose. I was born and bred in Israel. I uh, went to law school before I went. I did my uh, military service in Israel, which I did as a defense attorney. So I was representing AWOLs and uh, drug offenses during military time. There is no uh, solicitor barrister distinction in Israel. So I was basically doing court work. And um, when I finished my duties, I rented a room actually in a firm of patent attorneys and they needed uh, a litigator, which sounded great to me because uh, I proposed to do their litigation because I was always attracted to technology and doing military criminal law wasn't that exciting as a future career choice. So I started doing their IP litigation work and later got more and more involved in on the strategy side. So I just found it very interesting to sit down with really innovative people and uh, see what they are planning to do and how they're building new and exciting products and how they're planning to launch them and and what they want to do with them and uh, how we can uh, make our little contribution to that. At some point, uh, partners came in, partners came out. I I had enough, I generated enough business and became a partner there and, and ended up staying with one of the partners and uh, at some point setting up a branch in the UK. We were looking for an, an interesting competitive advantage, so we both qualified as solicitors and came here to set up a branch and uh, eventually ended up making a lifestyle decision to move here. When was this? That was in 2012. So we set up a branch in 2010, and uh, when we moved in 2012, it cost the firm because the other person didn't want me to move, so we almost merged a big firm as lawyers come and lawyers go. So he merged the big firm. I kept my brand and was transitioning uh, for a while until I have set up Pikama and that's what I do today. So you set up Pikama. How long were you with the branch until you decided to transition into the entrepreneurial? So I was full-time IP lawyer in the UK for about three and a half years before I became a full-time Pikama person. Okay, so let's hear a bit about Pikama. This is obviously your first entrepreneurial journey. So if you could just tell the listeners a little bit about what Pakama does and why you set up Pakama. It's the first one, I guess, in a tech company because I was running a business before that, but that business was a more conventional IP practice. Pakama started as um, almost by accident. It, it started as um, me hiring developers to build automation into how IP works and uh, doing it for my own practices needs. And then I had um, the enormous pleasure of having yet another chat with David Gill, who's just a a fantastic person in every possible way and is flowing with uh, positivity and and excitement. And he got me excited about why not do something more with that? And if you need automation, surely more people need automation. Why won't you set up a proper company? And uh, the idea kind of grew on me and then he introduced me to... The first investor in the company who was Robert Swan, another incredible individual who got excited from that because he had the experience of what it means to be a client in a, for, of an IP practice and was aware of the sort of uh, black box that you face when you deal with IP portfolios. So yeah, so that's how Picama was born. It started as a, 
building automation tools and, and the case management tool to improve the work of VIP attorneys. And uh, as startup go, startups go, it evolved into what it is today, which is a tracking, budgeting, and uh, portfolio management tool for IP owners primarily. So are David Gill and Robert Swan still involved at all? Or? So Robert Swan remains an investor. I don't see David as, as often as I, I would have wanted. I think that uh, David's passion is about getting companies off the ground. Yeah. And um, he successfully achieved that. Plus, I'm no longer in St. John's Innovation Center. So uh, I see him sometimes and I, I always hear good advice, but uh, he's not as involved as he was in the beginning now. Okay. So Pekama's all about innovating the IP industry. Can you tell us exactly how you plan on doing that in the future and where the company's going? Yeah, so the IP industry is one of the most ironic ones, I think, in the whole, maybe between all of the professions. It serves the most innovative companies you can think of. If, if a company builds a new piece of AI or a new drug or um, a new medical device, it will always have uh, patent attorneys and trademark attorneys all around it. So the most innovative companies in the world are surrounded by IP attorneys, but IP attorneys themselves, they deliver their core competence, which is drafting patent applications and preparing trademark applications, typically to a very high standard. But when it comes to innovation and to delivering exciting service, finding ways to deliver added value, creating clarity and transparency on their client side, there has been no change in the way that this profession is conducting itself since pretty much forever. And there's been a gradual movement to using less paper, but what we see in other sectors of the legal space and other spaces of AI entering the space, of more software, of a better client experience, of measured ways of delivering service, none of these things are happening in the IP space. And that's where Picama comes into play. We firmly believe that at some point the IP space has to catch up. So IP owners are experiencing a different type of service from their accountants who now deliver completely online and immediate experience using tools like Xero, from their lawyers who move on to cloud-based tools and faster experiences from other service providers that give them access to partners, to investors, to accelerators. And uh, as they experience a change in all of the industries that surround them, eventually they will come to demand change from their patent attorneys as well. And in Picama, we believe that forward-looking patent attorneys would want and need the sort of IT tools that we are creating to deliver a better experience and that IP owners will gradually grow to demand them more and more often. So how big is the IP industry? How long is uh, the spring, I guess? But yes, I've seen various estimates. The highest one I've seen talks about a $40 billion industry globally. The number of IP filings annually are about 19 million. So it's not small. But it's interesting in the sense that it's very big and everyone recognizes that it's important, but it kind of lives on the sidelines. So an entrepreneur goes through, a, through an investor deck, what's your sales strategy, marketing strategy, product market fit, do you have patents? Yes, carry on. And that's as much attention as IP usually gets. So it's sort of a tick 
that needs to be ticked, which is the source of what I believe is most of the problems of this space. So should all startups protect their IP? No. It really depends on the space. I mean, a startup in an IP-heavy space has to protect its IP, primarily its inventions. So if you're building a medical device or if you're creating a new drug or if you're a biotech company, essentially all of your value lies in your IP. And the more and higher quality patents you will generate, the better you usually are and your valuation would normally be higher and you'll be expected to do it. And if you won't do it and hard questions will be asked, it's almost obvious that you need to do it. In other spaces, such as software, not not AI, but software that's harder to protect, for example, it's a difficult question. Sometimes you would be sitting with a patent attorney and, and you have a borderline software patent and you will wonder whether it's worthy of protection or not. And I think to answer this question, you have to think of what exactly are you trying to achieve? Are you going to draft and file a patent now so that you can stop other companies from creating the same technology? If that's what you're thinking, then you're likely to be disappointed because no software patent in a, in a borderline field will ever stop anyone from doing anything. Nobody is ever going to bother reading which patents are in these sort of spaces. And if someone would try to figure out what's in, in these spaces, the space is usually crowded with patents that are very hard to read and cover a very uncertain amount of data. So if, if what you're trying to achieve is have the right to stop someone else from using your technology in a, in a borderline space, then that's unlikely. To, and, and even if there is a clear infringement and your patent is granted and there's a clear infringement, even then, would you have the capital to enforce? Where would you like to enforce? If it's in the UK or the US, typical enforcement can cost hundreds of thousands to millions. Would you have other options such as in the US, you can enforce patents using alternative models such as hiring companies that would fund your litigation in exchange for a a percentage of the proceeds. So maybe you will be able to enforce. But I think that looking at patents and the creation of patents, and I'll talk about trademarks in a minute, solely from the perspective of would I be able to enforce this patent is not seeing the whole picture as it is. I think that the, the first question that a startup CEO needs to ask themselves is, would drafting more patents help me achieve short-term goals, such as getting funding? And that depends, for example, on the type of investor that you're looking to recruit. So sadly, to my opinion, patents are not going through proper due diligence in most angel rounds in the UK. So most angels don't read them properly, don't get opinions on them properly, and they look at other things. So they're just ticking the box that there's something there. Yeah. So, so if the expectation of the investors that you're approaching is that you need to have something in place and you can have something that looks solid enough to satisfy that need, then even if it's not the objective reality, it might be useful for you. Whereas you might have a completely solid and strong IP proposition but you're going to be funding yourself with a group of investors that couldn't care less, in which case you may be better off spending your money doing other things. So there is no clear and definitive answer, and it always depends on the circumstances. But a few things are kind of general truths. It's rarely a bad thing to have IP protection. You're probably better off exaggerating to have more IP protection as opposed to have less IP protection. 
more IP tends to raise the value of companies. It's a fact. Even if it's low quality IP, it tends to raise the value of companies. And that's a fact as well. An IP portfolio tends to make exits easier in the sense that politically for many purchasing companies, it often helps to say we're buying that company alongside other things because it has a a chunk of patents that we need. And um, equally as in, in the beginning, this is not always looked into as deeply as it should be. So there are good reasons beyond enforcement per se why one would want to have a good patent portfolio. As for trademarks, trademarks are usually done because they're inexpensive. It's quite easy to do. And if you start building a brand, then protecting that brand is a few hundreds of pounds, at least in main territories. So it's kind of a no-brainer. Is it essential? In most of the cases where companies are doing tech, probably not. because The company is selling tech, it's not selling a brand. But it's useful and you would want to have a brand that's protected. And if you have uh, people starting to register domain names that are similar to your brand, whether they do it intentionally or not, you would want to have some enforcement mechanism. And a trademark is a very good enforcement mechanism. Because it's inexpensive, it's sort of a no-brainer. So most of the discussion is really about patents and it's a difficult discussion. It's not as much about what you want and how strong do you think that patent might be. It's a broader discussion about what's your short-term funding goals, what's your long-term funding goals, where do you see the value of your company's lie. Another fundamental truth is that it's rarely a good idea to overpay. And nevertheless, most people do that. Why do people love brands is often, I'm a trademark attorney by profession, and yet it's, it's often a mystery to me why people are so obsessed with brands. But I'm yet to see a single funding round fall because the investors have not thought that the patent firm that drafted the patent applications was not reputable enough. Yet I've seen many entrepreneurs thinking that someone cares which branded firm drafts their application. That's one misconception. My investors would care whilst they're actually not caring. Another misconception is you get what you pay for. That's my favorite one. Yes, you always get what you pay for. If you pay expensive, you get expensive. It doesn't mean you're getting good quality work. Generally, in the legal profession, when you instruct a big brand to do a piece of work, you can rely on that brand to typically have mechanisms in place not to do anything horrible. So the likelihood of your patent not being filed on time or a deadline being missed, which are the true disasters of this profession, is very low. Equally, and I'm a fan of mid-sized firms. I always thought that the value lies in even small to mid-sized firms that have very good attorneys that used to work in big branded firms and move to work in smaller and less expensive facilities. If you work with someone who used to be a partner in a big firm and, and now works for a smaller firm, they don't stop being good just because they move to work for a different firm. So my general feeling about IP work is that everyone or almost everyone overpays and there is no reason to. It's entirely possible to get more IP without overpaying and better service. It's all about being an informed customer and giving this issue the attention it deserves. And uh, yeah, it's part of what we're doing in Picama. We're creating the platform that enables these relationships and makes them feel safer.
many of our listeners are either early stage startups or they're thinking about starting up a company. What top three tips would you give people if they were thinking about defensibility and IP of their idea or their product? So the first tip would be get advice from someone who understands business. It's not easy to find, particularly when it comes to firms of patent attorneys. So you need a combination of understanding of your product and understanding of your business. There are commercially savvy patent attorneys out there. They're just not that easy to find. So get advice. And if you sit down in a meeting, go to a few meetings. Don't choose the first person you meet. Don't choose based on a recommendation of a friend because they have a different business. Go to a few meetings until you're completely satisfied that the person that you're talking to gets your business. That would be my number one advice. My number two advice would be get a good deal. What entrepreneurs fail to understand often is that IP is extremely expensive. It starts with a few thousands of pounds, which is not cheap, but it's not the end of the world. And within a year and a half or two years, it goes up to tens of thousands of pounds. And the disparity in this market is very significant. And it's completely unjustified. It gets even worse when the portfolio becomes global because you you will be working with a firm in China and a firm in Japan and a firm in Canada and a firm in the US. And all of these firms, you would rarely know them and they will have no direct loyalty to you. And they will have a system of agreements with the firm, the UK firm that send them the work, uh, which they might be sending that firm work back and you wouldn't even know about it. So it's very easy for this to become a very significant expenditure. And it's not just about the money, it's also about the level of attention. You sit down with someone, you get all of their attention, and then you're passed on to the paralegals and you'll get standard reports that you would not understand. You'll get a a notification saying that your patent is published and you'll have no idea what that means. So it's not just making sure you get a good deal in terms of price, it's make sure you get a good deal in terms of the sort of strategic understanding of what my business is that existed in the beginning when you initially helped me identify whether I should file a patent on something or not. That should carry on throughout the entire relationship. So every time there is a decision to be made, it's very important to reconsider everything, see what happened since then. Has my invention changed? Are the changes incorporated into what we've done? Is there a justification to file another patent? How is it going to look? Yeah, that would probably be advice number three, plan. Planning is difficult for IP. And again, this is some of what we do. We create budgets for patents based on the number of pages and claims and things like that. But in almost any other industry, if you ask the service provider, how much is that going to cost me in the next year, in the next two years, in the next three years, they would have the proper answer. In the IP space, you would normally get a very wide range of possibilities. If it would be very difficult to prosecute this patent, then it could be tens of thousands. And if not, it could be a quarter of that. It's possible to narrow down that range. And again, this is some of what we do with technology, but it's hard. So for patent attorneys to give numbers that support proper planning and proper budgeting, they need to sit down and work hard on that. But the key to any venture is proper planning. So this is absolute key. These are the sort of things where we feel that experience in the IP space is lacking and we build tools that 
provide budgeting and proper planning and so on. And we help facilitate relationships where ongoing strategic advice is part of the relationship and it's incorporated into it. I mean, obviously, we're always happy to help. But if it's not us, these are the things that I think are absolutely necessary. Go for someone that understands both your product and your business, which is very hard to find. And you can't just rely on the fact that someone understood someone else's product and business. Get a good deal because it does get expensive and plan and get all the data that you need in order to plan properly. And it's not easy to achieve and it's very easy to dismiss. But that's the key to success in that space. That is absolutely brilliant. I know that'll be hugely useful to a lot of people to know that and think that through properly. And your point about investors doing due diligence on the IP and the defensibility of it. So here's an anecdote. We used to do patent drafting for one of the biggest patent filers in the world. And as a policy, they would basically file patents for everything. And we were in charge of what we called, as a joke, the non-patentable subject matter department. We got every month three or four disclosures of things that are completely unpatentable. And our job was to make patents out of them. And they knew, and we knew, but it was part of value generation. So it's a bit cynical, but taking a commercial approach is the only sensible approach to doing IP properly. And it's a bit sad, I think, that the UK is a bit behind the US on this, especially when it comes to software. The Americans have, in recent years, narrowed down significantly what could be a software patent, and it's no longer such a broad, open door as it used to be in the past. But even then, when software patents were easily obtainable in the US, or relatively easily obtainable, I saw people coming from advice they received from patent attorneys based on this country, that a certain patent is not patentable, which was true in the UK or Europe. But it wasn't true in the US. And when a company builds a software product, the likelihood that they will eventually go to the US as a main market is so significant that you can't just dismiss the fact that there's a different jurisdiction that does allow these sort of patents. You have to have a degree of knowledge on other countries' practices as well. I think that changed to a degree, but it's this commercial understanding of, okay, who is that client? It's a software company. Where's the target market? It's America. Okay, we don't advise on European law, even though we know it better. We advise on the relevant law, which is American law. Another example, China, Japan, Brazil, Germany, a group of other countries are awarding an IP right called the utility model. It's uh, something between a patent and a design. It's sort of a functional design. And for products that have a shape and form, such as a medical device, for example, Sometimes it's the appropriate mechanism of protection. It's normally an alternative to a full patent, but it's granted faster and it's through less prosecution in in products that are likely to be copied. The domestic filers, like Chinese companies, they file lots of these utility models. UK applicants don't file utility models, even when they go to China. And that's a mistake. Why don't they file utility models? Because a similar right does not exist in the UK. So it's just not something that the local patent profession is normally used to advising on. So it just escapes the thinking pattern. If I don't know about it, and if I don't do it domestically, I don't think about it when it comes to overseas 
protection. Now, some obviously, some patent attorneys are advising to file utility models, particularly the ones that went to a conference and heard from their Chinese counterparts that it's a good idea for certain products. But it's exactly these things where when a company has an in-house department, the in-house department builds up that knowledge and expertise in relation to its products. And they know to question their local, their outside counsel and say, okay, why are we doing this? And why are we not doing that? And for the layperson, IP is such a complicated space that they just take all the advice they get and take it for granted. But it's a problem. So if you really want high quality advice and high quality service, you have to have a degree of understanding of the space or at least enough understanding to ask the right questions. So if, for example, I enter a national phase of a patent application in China, it's appropriate to ask the local expert what is the best way to do that. What do you recommend in this particular case to go for a utility model as opposed to a patent? That's another point. It sounds like, as you spoke about at the start of this podcast, innovation and change are something that's just not that common within the UK space. So I think that the last couple of points I made was more about good advice. It does exist. It's just uh, more a matter of luck than anything else, than innovation in its own right. What innovation should do in that context is be an enabler to good advice. For example, it's inconceivable that I would go to a certain patent firm and that patent firm is in any other aspect identical to a different patent firm that's just down the road. And unfortunately, sadly, all patent firms, at least the way they're perceived, are pretty much the same. And at least I haven't identified any particular brand difference or, or anything they do exceptionally different from each other. But even within the same patent firm, if I will go to one partner, they will know how to advise me about utility models in China. And if I go to another partner who wasn't in the same conference, they wouldn't know how to advise me about the very same thing. And technology that can create knowledge bases or the right kinds of alerts can be the enabler that will make sure that I will get at least the same type of basic advice from everyone, regardless of who I go to. So that's something that technology can do. Before we finish the podcast, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, just one thing from the investor's perspective. We do think that companies with IP should be, at least in theory, more interesting than companies that don't have something defensible. And uh, we do work with quite a few companies that have IP portfolios that we help them manage, we're more than happy to act as a funnel or to, if anyone's interesting in a particular space, we're very happy to make introductions to people who work with us. Well, that was incredibly insightful and seriously useful for a lot of people within the industry and the ecosystem for startups. So the investor investor would just like to thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's an honor. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. Investor.